How are you guys doing today? I am excited to be here. Again, my name is uh, Andre Gray, and as of most recently, I serve as one of the pastors here at our church. It is indeed a joy to be in the house of God with the people of God on yet another Sunday morning. If you're new with us or visiting with us this morning, first let me just say welcome. Uh, well, well, welcome to our family. It's it's not every day that you get to visit a church where you and the pastor are the new kids on the block. And so we are we're excited that you're here with us and worshiping uh, with us. If we can serve you or your family in any way, please, I just want to say don't, don't hesitate to, to let us know. Now today is, is without question a special Sunday in the life of our church family as we get to celebrate God's kindness towards us uh, in so many ways. Most notably, uh, for me, is the privilege that I have of being your new congregation pastor. I I cannot um, tell you how excited uh, my wife, Christine, and I are uh, to be here with you and to step into this new season um, together. It's especially exciting to know uh, that this moment that that we're experiencing as a church family, this moment does not happen outside of God answering our prayers. This moment doesn't happen outside of God answering our prayers. If, if this journey, um, this journey of, of the Lord of bringing my wife and I, my family and I to uh, Austin and to the Austin Stone, if, if it has taught me anything, this journey has taught me uh, that we serve a God who hears the petitions of his people and responds in his perfect timing and love. We serve a God who hears the petitions of his people and responds in perfect timing and love. He's a faithful God who has showered us with his grace and kindness this morning. And so South family, can I, can I just take a moment to, to invite you to just kind of put your hands together as we thank God for his faithfulness towards us. Can we just give God a hand clap of praise for his adoration, for his grace and his kindness towards us, his strong hand. Uh, has kept us, has guided us to this point, and I have no doubts, I have no doubts that he will continue to do so in the years to come. He is worthy of our honor and express gratitude this morning, church. So let's thank him for all that he has done in the life of our church family so far and all that he is getting ready to do. here's, Here's what I do know. The future is bright for the Austin Stone Community Church, and especially for the South Congregation. I'm confident that the Lord wants to radically deepen our transformation in him, empower us um, to be his witnesses in the world, and embolden us as his disciples to love him, to love his church, to, to love our city, and to love the nations. So my hope, my hope this morning is that we would be a people who are prayerfully tuned in and eagerly obedient to the vision that God has for our church here in South Austin as we dig into his direction for our lives and go where his direction leads us. So with that in mind, I want to invite us to open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John and the fourth chapter as we get ready to hear from God's word uh, this morning. Today... Today marks the beginning of a new five-week sermon series that we've entitled God's Love. With the dawn of a new year and a new decade, we want to give some careful attention to a topic that is foundational to the Christian faith and, and who we are as a church. God's love is a subject and reality that can often be undervalued and taken for granted in our lives. But it it is one of the central themes of the biblical narrative. It is essential to understanding the God of the Bible and of human history. So for the next five weeks, we'll be taking a break from our normal rhythm of preaching through a book of the Bible as we prayerfully consider together what the scriptures have to teach us about four particular things. One is God's love for you and I. We want to think about this idea of God's love and how it pertains 
to God's love for you and I. Secondly, uh, we're going to be talking about God's love for life, God's love for the, the human life from womb to tomb. How does God love human life? Thirdly, we're going to take some time to think about God's love for our neighbors. How does God think about the other, right? What is God's position and disposition towards the other? And lastly, we're going to spend some time in this series uh, talking about and thinking about God's love for relationships, from from dating to, to marriage to friendships and everything in between, God's love for relationships. His love for you and I his love for human life, his love for our neighbors, and his love for relationships. We're going to be jumping back into the book of Matthew at the end of the series, but today we kick things off by taking account of the absolutely revolutionary claim that God loves you. God loves you. This truth can frequently be written off as some sort of cliche phrase, but one that we toss around in casual conversation while missing the depth and weight that it has for our lives. It has been redefined to take on meanings that fall outside of the meaning that God gives it. For some, it's been despised and understood to be ridiculous and insensitively cruel on account of the immense trial and evil that we face each and every day in this world. However, in true Johannine style, the beloved apostle invites us, his readers, into a radical, robust, and weighty understanding of God's love in what we know as his first epistle. For John, God's love for us is no cliche phrase to be undervalued or despicable lie to be dismissed. In 1 John chapter 4, particularly verses 7 through 12, we are reminded of three things. We are reminded that God's love for us, God's love for you is eternal. That God's love for you was perfectly expressed and that God's love for us empowers us to love. Today, my hope is that we would see in this passage three things. That God's love for you is eternal, that God's love for you was perfectly expressed, and that God's love for you empowers you to love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, and let's read, let's read God's word together. John pens these words. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Church family, in this moment, can I invite you to pray for me, and I will pray for you, and we will collectively hear, thus saith the Lord this morning. Father, would, in in this moment, Father, would you, would you meet us, your people, in ways that, that, Father, only you know that we need? God, we find ourselves today before you as needy people, desperate people. People in need of answers and of healing and of deliverance. And Father, in the places where we've 
try to run after it and figure it out and, 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 and grab it for ourselves. Lord, we've, we found time and time again that our efforts just sort of slip through our fingers. And so, Father, we, we want to we sit here before you this morning and just declare to you that, Lord, we need you. And so, Father, as we sit under the, the truth of your word and, and hear what you have for us this morning, Father, would you soften our hearts to receive? Would you prepare us for the work that you have for us? Father, would you allow your word to transform us from the inside out? Father, Father, don't allow us to walk out of this room today the same people that we walked in, but change us. Make us more like your son. Make us more like Jesus this morning. Help us, Lord, to, to hear your word and not only hear your word, but be transformed by your word and in so doing, be people who obey your word. Father, we trust you to do this work and we pray all of these things in your good and matchless and mighty name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. God's love for you is eternal. It is eternal. God is love. A simple yet, yet rich theological statement that is jam-packed with truth. As John seeks to make it emphatically clear that to truly know and understand love is to know and understand God himself. You cannot separate love from God nor God from love because love is from God. Now, I think it's important to, to take a second and think about what John is saying here in the text. On the one hand, he says that love is from God. But then just a verse later, he says that God is love. Oh, well, that's because John, John isn't saying that, that love is from God in the same way that a, a text or a call is from a friend. Love is from God it's sort of in the same way that light is from the sun. It isn't something that he, that he does today and, and doesn't do tomorrow. Love is a constant, natural outflow of who God is by nature. Light comes from the sun because sun is light. And in the same way, love is from God because God is love. Now, church family, I don't want you to miss how incredibly profound this truth really is. God's love isn't based on anything other than himself. God's love isn't based on anything other than himself. It's intrinsic to who he is. This means that the love of God is not bound up by anything that's outside of him. And so it looks nothing like the sort of earthly human love that you and I are probably most familiar with. The sort of love we are commonly exposed to is limited and broken, to say the least. Even among the best of us, we can probably all identify someone we know or know of that we would without hesitation identify as a loving person. Someone who, who loves uh, 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 selflessly and, and loves with all that they have. But, but I highly doubt, I highly doubt, even in identifying the best of us, that, that we would describe them as being this sort of perfect embodiment of love. I highly doubt that that's a sort of description that we would give to even those of us that love the best. That's because even among the best of us, even among the best of us, love is fragile, it, it, our love is demanding, it is corruptible, and it is fleeting. But, but in this short three-word statement, God is love, the, the Apostle John helps us to see that God's love is nothing like the love that you and I give. His love, God's love, is pure, it is holy, it is limitless, and it is everlasting. God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. You see, long before the earth was formed, 
or the universe was placed into orbital motion, God was. The Father, the the Son, and the Spirit, this triune creator God existing in perfect harmony and pure eternal love. The Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Spirit, the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son. The triune God, three persons existing in one essence, God. God's love is pure and it is eternal. Now, church, this this is incredibly good news for us this morning because it points us to the comforting reality that that God's eternal love for us is steadfast and unwavering. It invites us to both rest in God's love for us and be satisfied by God's love for us as we ask the Spirit to help us believe in the truth of God's love for us. Now, you, you, you might be here this morning and saying, Dre, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. I, 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 know God's, I, I know God's love for me. I know he loves me and that his love for me has no end. I, I know this. I, I know this, but, but I find it hard to believe. I find it hard to believe. What, what you know to be true cognitively hasn't quite been confirmed for you experientially. You would answer the question, do you believe God loves you with a resounding yes? But it's no different than than saying yes to the question, do you believe fire is warm? You know it to be true, but, but it's been a while since you felt it. It's been a while since you've felt the warm embrace of the eternal love of God in your life. And in many ways you might feel as though you've been sort of separated from his love. And instead of pursuing the God you know loves you, you've sort of withdrawn into the shadows of apathy. You find yourself just just kind of going through the motions and not really sure what to do about this perceived lack of God's love in your life. If if that is you this morning, if that's you, I I want to give you a simple reminder that God has not separated you from his love. His love for you has not changed, and it is ever-present for you today. Paul tells us in the eighth chapter of Romans that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even you, can take God's love away from you. So can I, can, can I encourage you right where you are this morning, to to sort of crawl out of those shadows of apathy and ask the Spirit to do what he is willing and able to do. Ask him to pour out God's love for you in new and fresh ways. Ask him to wrap you in the warm embrace of God's love as you earnestly pursue him. And my prayer, my prayer is that he would give you a fresh taste of his sweet love that would reignite the way you pray, the way you worship, and the very way that you live life. That as you pursue God this morning, as you you run after the God that you know loves you, that you would trust him to to give you the experience that you know, that you would trust him to, to meet you in the very places that you are, and that in so doing, God would answer those prayers and give you a, a fresh and a new taste of of his love. Now, maybe you don't resonate with everything that I just said. Because you're not, you're not struggling to believe something in your heart that, that you know to be true in your head. For you, there's no truth at all that, 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 that this claim that God loves us stands to be true. 
And so you see no reason to believe it. And why should you? Why should you believe that God actually loves you? Well, before you, before you tune me out, if you haven't already, let, let me say that, that you shouldn't believe simply because I'm saying that God loves you or because anyone says it for that matter. The idea that God loves you is, in my opinion, the most profound truth that you could ever know and believe. Not because of what has been said, but because of what has been done. You see, the statement God is love serves as much more than a phrase to be made much of. But, but it's a window into the reality that God has given and continues to give much of himself in an effort to seek after the ultimate benefit of others. The benefit of people like you and me. So with that in mind, I would invite you to consider the fact that God's love for you is not only eternal, but God's love for you is real because God's love for you was perfectly expressed. God's love for you was perfectly expressed. Do me a favor, go back to that fourth chapter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, and I want us to look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10, 1 John chapter 4, 9 and 10. In this, is, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, John says, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John, John, John sort of moves forward in his exhortation to demonstrate that God's love for us is not some, it's not some passive sentiment, but an active reality that has been put on bright display for all to see, believe, and experience. It's not distant, it's not a distant and disconnected saying, but rather a near and engaged demonstration. It's a love that is moved and is ever moving towards us as it relentlessly pursues dead people and sacrificially gives them life. It is selfless in this way, and the scriptures help us to see that, that this divine expression of love is an incredibly glorious work of the Trinity. It's, it's this work of the Trinity where, where we see that, that, that God's love, God's love for you and I was perfectly expressed by the Father sending his son. By the Father sending his son. John, John 3, 16, the most well-known verse in all the Bible, tells us that, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, now if you're a parent in the room, I'm sure you would agree that, that this is a pretty bold, to say the least, expression of love. That this idea that, that you would sacrifice your only child, your only son, for the sake of another, it is, is, is a, is a mind-boggling reality. Why would anyone do this? More importantly, why would God do this? Why would God sacrifice the life of his only son? Well, to put it quite simply, because the world needed to be saved. Because you and I needed God to save us from our sinful selves and from his holy wrath. You see, Genesis 3 brings us into a story. It tells the story of our first parents, uh, God's, God's first created beings. Adam and Eve is, are their names. And, and, and we find them in this third chapter of Genesis sort of rebelling against God. God had given them all that they could ever want or ask for. 
God had created this world, and then he created them in the world, gave them access to this world that he created, and told them to to flourish and to rule and to reign in the name of God. And as God is sort of setting the, the created order of the world and sort of setting the parameters of the world that he created, he tells Adam and Eve, hey, hey, all that I have created, everything that I've, that I've put in this world, you have access to it. You have full access to enjoy it, to, to cherish it, to steward it. But, the, but, but, but there's this one thing I, I want you to stay clear of. There, 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 there's, this, there's this barrier, there, there, there's this parameter that I, I don't want you to step over this threshold. I am God, you are not. I am creator, you are creation. And here's the barrier for you. And I'm asking you not to cross over that. But, but, but Adam and Eve, as we see in Genesis 3, decide that, that they're going to believe a lie, a lie from the enemy, a lie that says, hey, what God says really isn't that important. What God says doesn't really mean much of anything. I mean, does God really mean what he said to you? Do you really have to stay away from that barrier, that parameter, that, 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 that threshold that he asks you not to walk over? Do you really need to do that? Adam and Eve believed a lie. And in so doing, performed one of the greatest acts of rebellion that the world has ever known. Committed one of the greatest atrocities and treasons that the world has ever seen. In their sinfulness, they disobeyed God's word to them, God's commands to them, and decided that God is no longer supreme in this world, but that they are. And this story that we see in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, this story is, is, is bringing us into the reality of who you and I are, of what you and I have done. It's not some distant reality that, that some people did long and long ago, but that is a story that is bringing us into the reality and, and the ways in which you and I live our lives each and every day. We live our lives in such a way that where God is telling us what life is about and what he wants for us, and every day we are making the conscious decision that God is not supreme in this world or in our lives, but that we are. We make ourselves, the people around us, the things that we have, we make those things supreme and not God. So we find ourselves in this state of helplessness. Adam and Eve found themselves in this state of helplessness. It says that that when they rebelled against God, they they sort of ran away and hid and and sort of covered themselves because they knew that what what they had done was wrong that God would not be pleased. But God, we will see, and we have seen in this story, God didn't leave them in the demise of their sin. God, in response to man's sinful rebellion against him, God makes a promise we see in Genesis 3. God made a promise to provide the only hope that they had at restoring what they had broken. Adam and Eve had broken everything that God had given them. They had broken this this perfect, loving relationship that they had with God, this communion that they had. The Bible says that, that Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day. They had they had unblocked access to the God of the universe. Because of their decision, that that access had been broken. That relationship had been severed. It had been tainted. But God makes a promise where Adam and Eve found themselves hopeless, unable to fix what they had done wrong, unable unable to, to, to rewrite the script, so to speak. God makes a promise to the people that had offended him. God looks at them and he says, hey, I'm going to give you the only hope that you have at restoring what you had broken. I'm going to send my son, the seed of the woman. I'm going to send my son Jesus into the world to live a life that we are incapable of living. 
a perfect and sinless life, a life that obeys the Father, a, a, a life that is, that is free of, of disobedience, a life that is sinless. And not only did Jesus come and not only did God send Jesus to live this life that you and I are incapable of living, but God, the Father, sent the Son to die the death that we deserved to die as a rightful consequence for our sin. See, Adam and Eve and you and I find ourselves in this place where we had done something and we are continually doing something that requires God to respond. It requires him to, to respond in justice. You, you, might, you might think to yourself, but how can God be love if he would do such a thing? How, how could God be love if he would, if he would allow us to, to find ourselves in such a place? Well, I would say, how can God be love if he doesn't? You, you wouldn't call a judge loving and righteous and, 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 and one that is for justice if he would just sort of overlook the atrocities that, that someone would cause against a loved one of yours. If you were standing in the courtroom and the, and, and the judge is looking at the person that, that committed a crime against your loved one and said, hey, you know what, I'm just going to pardon you today. I'm just going to let you go free. No, 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 no need for punishment, no need for anything. You just, you just, I'm just going to give you a clean state, just a second chance, just go. I mean, you would stand up and you, you would say, that, that, well, that's not right. So something ought to be done for what this person did. There, there ought to be some sort of, of response of justice to this atrocity. And in the same way, God God in his justice and in his, his love for holiness and, and purity and righteousness, God had to respond to our sin with his wrath. So the rightful punishment for our, our sins was death and is death. We deserved to die as a rightful consequence for our sins. But we see also here in the Trinity that God's love, God's love was perfectly expressed not only in the Father sending the Son, but by the Son laying down his life. God's love was perfectly expressed by the Son laying down his life. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. Dr. King, in one of his early sermons at uh, Daxter Avenue Baptist Church is quoted as saying this, God's love is brought to clearer light when we turn our eyes toward Calvary. For it is here that we find the supreme example of God's love. The scene on Calvary is more than a meaningless drama that took place on an earthly stage. But it is a telescope through which we look, on, look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is God's way of saying to wayward men, come home, I still love you. Come home, I still love you. You see, Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for our ultimate good. Where we were weak, he was strong. Where we failed, he succeeded. And as a result, you and I get to partake in the glorious gift of eternal life. Our, our relationship with God has been restored, and, and we once again get to commune with him. Jesus came, took on a Roman cross, walked it up Mount Calvary, allowed himself, imagine this, allowed himself, the God of the universe, to be nailed to that cross, beaten and mocked and scorned, 
allowed his life to be taken so that you and I may benefit in the greatest of ways. God, God did not sit by passively and watch us wallow in our sin and in our consequences. But God said, because I love you, as John 3.16 says, because I so loved you, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to allow my son, my only son, whom I love, to die on behalf of you. To, to, to sort of take your place, if you will. That's what John tells us in the epistle. He says that Christ came to be the propitiation of our sins. All, all that word means is that God came to be our substitute, that, that he came to take the, the, the place that we, that, that we deserve to take. That, that when you think about Calvary, when you think about the cross, you ought to see yourself on it. I, I ought to see myself on it. But rather than seeing yourself or myself, what we see when we look at Calvary is Jesus. We see Jesus laying down his life for sinful humanity. And now, now you and I, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, get to partake in the riches of his reward that what is the reward of Jesus, the reward of, of eternal life, the, the reward of, of conquering sin, death, and the grave. That's what Jesus accomplished in his death. He took on death itself. He took on sin itself. He took on the grave itself. And in his resurrection, he conquered them all. So Jesus accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we get to reap the rewards and the benefits of his work. We get to once again enjoy communion with the triune God. We get to once again sort of walk with God in the cool of the day. Because God did not only perfectly express his love by sending the son, he not only perfectly expressed his love by the son laying down his life, but God's love is perfectly expressed by the spirit inviting sinners into the saving power of his love. John 15, 26 tells us, but when the helper comes, speaking about the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Here's the invitation for you and I this morning. The Spirit of God is always on the move in the world. And here's the work that he is about most ultimately. The Spirit of God is about drawing dead people into eternal life. Amen. That's the work that God is after. That he is about accomplishing the purposes and the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. He invites you and I each and every day to come into the fullness of the saving power of the love of God in Jesus. And all you and I have to do is, is to sort of lay our lives down, take, take all that our life is and lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, my life no longer belongs to me, but belongs to you. I don't have the answers. I don't have what it takes. I, I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't make my wrongs right. Father, only you can do that. So the invitation that Jesus, that the Spirit invites us into is to, is, is to sort of throw all of our life onto the life of Jesus and say, Father, would you, would you give me the reward that I have in your Son? That as you and I trust the work that Jesus has done, 
and believe that to be the, the sufficient work, the, the, that there's nothing else that we need other than to trust in the work that Jesus has already accomplished. As we sort of lay our lives down at the foot of Jesus in that sort of a way, Jesus, through the Spirit, invites us into the fullness of the power and the beauty and the sweet life of salvation. So if you're here this morning, and you're wondering, what, is it, what does it look like to know God? What, what does it look like to have a life that is transformed by God? What does it look like for this reality of God loving me to be true for me? How can I experience God's love for me? Answer, by laying your life at the foot of Jesus. By trusting in his finished work but by accepting it as, as your one and only way into full and perfect and eternal communion with the Father. That's the invitation that God has for you and I in the room today. And if you, if you don't know him this morning, if, if you don't know him in that sort of a way, in this restored, redeemed way, I, 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 would, I would urge you to, to think about the invitation that the Spirit has for you this morning this invitation into the saving power of his love, and, and would, you, would you respond as the Spirit prompts? Could, could I ask you to consider the invitation and respond to the invitation? And for those of us that have already responded, for, for those of us that, that, that know that we are in the family of God, would we be reminded of the sweetness of the salvation, the gift of salvation that God has given us? And would that reminder ever reignite our passion and our love and our dedication to our God? Would that ignite our passion and our dedication to our God? And not only that, not only that, but I'm praying that it would also empower us to be loving people. Because here's the thing. It's not enough to just know that God loves you, which we need to know that. It's important to, to know the, the truths of God and to, and to affirm the truths of God. But it's not enough to simply know that God loves you and that his love is eternal. Nor, nor is it enough to, to simply accept the gift of God's perfectly expressed love towards us. It's not enough to simply say, say God, give me your love. Give me all that you have for me and sort of hoard it in the corner. It's not enough to know and it's not enough to receive. But, but as a result of both of those things, God is calling us to be a people who express love, who do unto others as God has done unto us. So John invites us lastly to consider that God's love for us, God's love for you, empowers you to love. That God's love for you empowers you to love. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. John says in verses 11 and 12 of the fourth chapter of his epistle, he says this, Beloved, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, this is not an invitation to simply love those who love you. While that is important, John, John is, is sort of calling us into this collective idea of what it means to express love, to, to, to be a people who are about love, to be a people of love, if you will. But it's not just an invitation to love those who love us. That's easy. But it's an invitation to love the way that you have been loved. Watch this. God's love for you is the greatest demonstration of this fact. Dr. King says it this way. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. You see, God's love is powerful and it is empowering. 
It is the source of our ability to love like God loves us, to move towards the unlovable. Jesus, in his famous sermon on the mount, is is teaching his disciples through through a series of things. And in the fifth chapter, Jesus kind of lands on on this subject. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the philosophy of life that you've heard. But I tell you, this is Jesus, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that, Jesus says. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says. Here's 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 what the Son is inviting us into. God's love was perfectly expressed to his enemies so that he can make his enemies his friends. And now we, who are the friends of God, have been empowered to love our enemies so that they too can experience the redeeming, transforming love of God. That that, that is our purpose in the world. That is why we are here. That, that, That is why God has us. It's to express his love to the world. It's to be his people who demonstrate his love to those around us. That that they would know that there is a God who lives. That there is a God who exists, who loves in such a way that even his enemies could be made his friends. So the question I have for you this morning is, where in your life have have you expressed the love that God has given you to others? Not by loving those who love you. Not, not by sort of, sort of staying secluded in your little tribe, but how have you sort of stepped outside of your tribe, stepped outside of your comfort, stepped outside of your sort of friend groups and your circles and loved the unlovable? Love those who are hard to love. Because here's the truth. You were hard to love. I was hard to love, yet God loved us. Yet he moved towards us. And so he invites us to do the same. He invites us to love in the ways in which we have been loved. So this morning, my my prayer for us as we close, my prayer for us is echoed from the Apostle Paul found in the book of of Ephesians. And and, and I, I want to I want to read this passage of scripture as a way of praying over you and praying for you and myself. That as we consider God's love for us, this idea that God loves you, that God loves us, as we consider that, my my hope is that we we would know that God is love, that his love is eternal, that we would know the truths of the love of God. That, that we would embrace the expressed love of God, that we, would, that we would take the invitation that he gives us to, to taste and see of his goodness and love. And that once we have tasted and seen, we would live our lives in such a way that it is about nothing else other than to express the love that has been expressed to us. Here's my prayer for us, church. My prayer for us Paul writes these words, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning, Lord. That, that we would be filled with the fullness of your power. That we, by your love, would know you in new ways. That we would be strengthened by your love. That, Lord, you would, through your love, be doing a, a new and miraculous work in each and every one of us. That by the work of your spirit, we, we would be empowered to to know your love, to know that you love us, to know that that is true. And not only to know it, but Father, to experience it in the ways that you want us to. That we would would run towards the invitation that you give us each and every day as as you stretch forth your hand of grace and say, come, my children. Come and, and let me wrap you in the warm embrace of my love. And so, Father, would you, would you empower us to accept that embrace? And, Lord, would you empower us to express your love? Would you help us to be a people who are not only receiving love but giving love in the ways that we have been given it? That is to be our story, Lord. We are going to need your spirit. We're going to need your power, and we're going to need your grace in our lives. And so, Father, we're trusting you for that this morning. We're trusting that you would meet us in those ways and that you're going to do the work that only you can do in our hearts and lives. It's in Jesus' name that we ask and pray.